right now right now you're in north carolina i am yes and is that where you moved to no i actually moved to new jersey oh so right. it was kind of last weekend i moved to new jersey this weekend i had come to north carolina for work so they're having a, a big thing with all the people coming to the office and then next week i'm on vacation so i'm once again traveling so <laughs> it's just non-stop for this month but i'm i'm highly anticipating the the um hectic schedule to calm down for me and where are you going on vacation we're going to paris actually oh. we we had booked a paris flight back in 2020 and the day before we left president trump came on and said by the way we're banning travel to uh europe <laughs> <laughs> it was the night we were supposed to um, get ready to go to the airport. The night before we were supposed to go to the airport. So. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's the worst. The oh, yeah. worst timing. <laughs> Jeez. Now just imagine if President Biden comes on now and says, "By the way," <laughs> and say, "No, please, <laughs> you can't do this again." <laughs> now, in in Paris, uh, are you are you doing like the Eiffel Tower and? That's the only thing I, that I, that's the first thing I think of when I think of Paris. I think we're not going to be too far from it. My girlfriend actually used to live over there. She works, she's a medical oh, wow. physicist. So she had been stationed in Germany. She worked with, um, it was like an army base, but she did their cancer treatment. So she was in Germany for a couple of years and she became very familiar with Europe while she was over there and Paris being one of her favorite places. So I'm the tourist. She's more closer to a native i guess you could say not not exactly but <laughs> she's showing me around this time <laughs> have you ever been to europe uh we went to germany in 2019 so oh, cool. we went to berlin and uh and copenhagen denmark and then we came back and immediately booked our paris tickets and then 2020 happened <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice i've i've actually i have been to europe i've been to iceland which oh nice is still Europe, um, yeah. But that that's it. That's that's the only place I've been to outside of like North America, besides mm. Canada and the U.S. Yeah, I I've been all over the Caribbean actually. Um, I used to do cruises. I'm from Florida originally, so I would do a lot of cruises. And then I also had friends who lived in Trinidad, so I got to experience Trinidad and Tobago. You know, uh, they're technically one country two names one country but you go to fly into trinidad you get on this teeny tiny little plane to get to tobago <laughs> they get you up to flying altitude and say okay we're descending and then you're in tobago <laughs> well that's in that's in the caribbean you're saying mm -hmm. oh yeah. okay okay for some reason i thought that that was like a african nation but wow i i, I guess i i mean i've never been mm -hmm anywhere near over there besides key west i guess is the furthest i've been that far south i love the Which, keys it's very nice yeah. yeah and whereabouts in florida are you originally from so specifically the county i lived in was called broward county we're most famous for ruining every election since the year 2000 so <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. just north of miami so i was dead center of south florida so i you know miami uh other coast is Naples. You've got Palm Beach, you got the Keys, Orlando. So I used to be all around Florida. I almost never left Florida. So then now uh, when I moved to the Midwest a couple of years ago, I've been all over the place here now and I'm loving it. I get so much more than when I'm in South Florida. You kind of get sectioned off from the rest of the US when you're in South Florida. Yeah, uh, but that, 
see, I always, I always say like, oh, I want to go somewhere or I would love to live somewhere where it's warm all the time. Mm-hmm. But is there like, is there drawbacks to living in a place like that? So Florida specifically, um, a lot of people are moving there right now. And I think most of them are going to move back. It's probably a little dramatic to say most, but the problem with Florida is it's very humid. And if you're not used to the humidity, you come in and it's basically, you know, I would go from my house to my car and I'd have to change my shirt, but I'm used to it. So it's like, you just sweat so much from the humidity, but us natives, you know, we're used to it. This is normal to us. We don't care. And then you get a lot of people from New York who come down and they don't realize that even when it's cold in Florida, it's still humid. So uh, here now uh, in Ohio, I would go out, it's like 45 degrees. I'd be out cutting my grass in a short sleeve shirt. In Florida, if it's about 71, maybe 70, I'm in a full hoodie with probably uh, another coat over top of me because it just, you're so used to how hot it is that 70 is freezing to you sometimes. Wow. Oh, <laughs> it's I a would, different world. <laughs> I would love to experience that. Well, maybe, maybe I would eat my words after living there for a few years. I recommend it to everyone though. You never know. It could be for you. It could not be. I didn't think the cold was going to be for me. And now I love it here. Everyone says, why would you move here from Florida? And I'm like, I love it. Wow. That's cool though. Yeah. Of. Um, Derek, sorry, I'm going to give you a proper introduction because I I did start recording. Sure. <laughs> um, and I I like doing these. I do rolling just intros where we just roll right into it. Um, and for everybody out there listening, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Chris. And today joined by another very special guest, Mr. Derek Torrance, author of The Bite-Sized Win Mindset. And... Derek and I got connected because we worked at the same company and I know we never physically, we've never met each other, but uh, we were at the same company doing the work from home life for ever since uh, 2020. (laughs) And um, Derek, uh, please introduce yourself though for the audience. Absolutely. So as Chris said, I'm Derek Torrance, Um, born and raised in South Florida, moved to the Midwest not too long ago, but I, I come with nearly two decades of experience in software development. And a good portion of that has been in leading teams, which is where the bite-sized win mindset came from. You know, without getting too far into it, I know we'll get to that in a bit, but a lot of it centers around how you should divvy up the work to your team in smaller tasks than you normally would. And the way that I usually explain this to people is think about you're in, you know, you're in maybe high school, maybe even college when you work on a project throughout the semester, it's always easier when things are a lot smaller for you. It's easier to plan out how long it's going to take you. And that's really where I was rolling with the bite-sized one mindset, but we'll definitely get into all of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't realize you have 20 plus years. That's, that is a lot. That's like almost as long as I've been alive kind of. Almost 20, actually. My my first real software development um, position was in 2006. I was working with a company that did debt consolidation. They were a nonprofit down in South Florida. But prior to that, I, I actually started in the year 2004. There was a, it was an indoor theme park for children where they could pretend like they were doing different jobs. And due to a very um, 
odd series of events. By the time I was 19, I was already IT manager there. So I was very quickly thrown into the leadership uh, in my career, but IT is really where I got my start at. And then, you know, as I got into college, I realized software development is a little more my speed than IT. I still love IT, but software development is where I ultimately wound up at. Now, you also, you taught English for a little bit. Is that right? I was studying English. Oh, studying so, English. Okay. Yeah, I I went through this period in college where I wasn't entirely certain what I wanted to do. I was almost certain I wanted to teach. So it started out as I was going to be a music teacher because I'd been uh, studying music. I'd been in school bands since sixth grade. And then <clears throat> that wasn't panning out so well because I was going to community college. And it's kind of difficult, at least at mine, to get involved with music there. So then I, I had a deep passion for English and, you know, um, learning and reading and everything like that. So English was the path I started to go. And then I just so happened to fall into a software development job. And I said, hey, why don't I just study this? Nice. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. And um, you you had mentioned your first, first, um, first IT job or your first software development position. Now... What is your current role? Like, can you talk about like your current role at your current company? Sure. So I am, um, I'm what's called an application development manager and not, not very, uh, you know, technically impressive, you know, outside of what you would assume it is. But what I mean by, you know, I'm called that is because my company has several managers. Um, I lead the team that has to do with backend development. There's another manager who deals with the front end development. So we work together to get everything going like that. So my focus day to day is on, you know, primarily C sharp. And then we have some external systems that we do custom scripting for, but I manage the people uh, throughout those projects. Oh, very cool. Okay. And you, uh, how long have you been in this role for? This role, I just started about three months ago. Okay. Prior to that was the company that you and I worked together. Um, for mm -hmm. there, I was what was called a delivery manager. And my job was to make sure that what the client received is what they were expecting. So um, even though, yes, I was a manager, I had some people who reported to me. My focus was more on the delivery than the actual uh, development. Okay. Now, your book, The Bite-Sized Win Mindset, when did when did you first get the idea to write this book? Actually, it, there was a period, um, it was last year, around November or December, I started writing it because I had sat in on a talk um, from someone who was discussing a book that he had written for Agile and how to coach Agile teams. And I was sitting there and I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, I could write a book like this. And it was one of those things where I really liked his book. I liked the way that it was laid out. I liked the things he was talking about. But I was like, you know, we don't really have something that teaches, um, you know, specialized non-development things in the software field. You know, you have team organization, you have your scrum, you have your agile, things like that. But a lot of them are usually written for the scrum master. They're not usually written for the audience of software developers, people who are focusing on the software itself. Um, at least books that I have read, I should say, haven't typically been on that. And I was thinking, well, this might be a good thing for me to to discuss because I have a lot of experience with organizing teams. And the kind of concept that I'm teaching here, even though I explain it in terms of software development, I try to keep it broad in some areas to where 
you know, people who are leading teams that aren't necessarily software can also benefit from it. You know, the whole idea of making things smaller, making things bite-sized is not a software thing. It's just a team organization thing. And there's even a chapter in the book, I, I believe it's chapter four, is the, um, it, it's called the Toss Five Method. It's kind of like a little game that I actually got from minimalism. Because there was a period of time where I was studying minimalism pretty heavily because I really liked what it was, but I like having stuff far too much to, <laughs> to commit to minimalism. But it's basically the idea is that every morning you should look at, look at the, you know, the garbage in your life, the things that are around you. Just throw out five things. After 30 days, you know, five times 30, you've thrown out 150 items. And it's just things that are not cluttering your life anymore. And I started thinking, well, what if we thought about this in terms of software development? You know, you can clean up five lines of code. You can write five unit tests. You know, there's a lot of different things you can do. So in terms of software development, I was able to bring that in there while at the same time teaching it as a concept that people can just use generically in their life. Okay. And so this, this term minimalism, is this at all also related to, like I've heard digital minimalism and like people mm -hmm. doing... Um, like technology fasts where they don't, mm -hmm. they don't use their phone for several days. Is that, is that kind of related to that? I think, I think the spirit behind them is similar, but the application of them is completely different. So the idea of traditional minimal, minimalism is being able to live with minimal things in your life. Whereas the digital minimalism, which I have seen before as well, that's more about just cutting out things that distract you. So I guess in a sense, minimalism, yes, you know, the things in your life, they distract you, but it's about keeping your life clear. Whereas I think digital minimal, minimalism is more about keeping your, your mind clear, keeping your distractions away from you. Okay. I, I like that distinction. And I, I'm reminded of this movie that I saw uh, up in the air with George Clooney came <laughs> out several years ago now, and he's giving a speech in that movie and he talks about a backpack and mm -hmm. he says that he said that you can carry a lot of stuff in your backpack but the straps get heavier on you and mm -hmm. he it seems like now i'm trying to connect what you were saying <laughs> to him and it seems like he was maybe advocating for yeah sure you can carry around a bunch of stuff but you're gonna be like slower and not you know, it's going to be heavier on you. And right. I don't know if I'm making a stretch now with this comparison, <laughs> but. Is that the one where he was, um, he was hired to go fire people basically? Yes. Yes. Yep. I do remember that movie. Maybe that is what he was talking about in there. Cause I mm -hmm. think back when that movie came out, cause this is probably about 10, maybe 12 years ago at this point, I think, I think that's about the time that I was discovering minimalism too. Maybe it's, Maybe that was all going on in this time, and I just wasn't aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it might have been. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know why that just weird random stuff pops in my head, and <laughs> I try to like connect, connect a lot of dots together. Yeah. Um, now in your book, you talk about uh, somebody named Tammy, mm -hmm. and Tammy seems like a very like prominent person in your life, special person. Um, did they have a, a, like a tremendous effect on your career as uh, in software? I would say absolutely. Actually, Tammy, Tammy and I still talk every now and then. Um, 
and I was telling her about the book that I was writing it and I had included a quote that she had said to me in, in LinkedIn chat, actually we were talking about this, but Tammy was the first scrum master I ever had. So back in, I wanna say, I, I said the year in the book and it's escaping me at the moment. I think it was somewhere around 2013 is when Tammy and I first met. Um, and she was brought in because we were starting to implement more of a scrum methodology within the organization. And we had some of our, our coworkers go out and get certified. So we had our, our, project, our product manager um, certified as a product owner. We had our CTO as, um, I forget what his certification was, but then my, you know, my uh, tech lead, he was certified as a scrum developer. So we did all these different ones. And one of the things that came about it was, you know, we all want to do this, but we need someone who has the experience in it and someone who's really going to be managing it, which is what the Scrum Master role itself is. So then that's where Tammy came in. And I think the way that Tammy really influenced our our company on how to implement Scrum is what really shaped the way of how I look at it and Agile overall, because she looked at it as you know, she was our gatekeeper. She was, you know, fighting the fires to keep us focused on our, our scrum, our, you know, our sprints. And she was always there to make sure that we had the tools that we need. And the thing is, when we were first talking about Scrum Master, I didn't really understand what it was. I said, how can someone be dedicated to just sitting there? <laughs> you know, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think by having her in that position and seeing her really bring in and define it within the organization, it really influenced the way that I look at Scrum overall. And it really made it to where I understood why people fit in certain places. She was very good about you know, laying out the blocks of, hey, this is what your role is, and this is why your role is that. And that's really a big reason why I, I did bring her up in the book, because I think that she helped really, you know, pave the way for what I came to understand throughout my years way after this. Now, I, I know you've mentioned the term scrum uh, a, a few times now, and just for for people who who are listening who might not know that term, can, can you kind of briefly describe what scrum is, what agile is? Sure. So Scrum and even Agile overall is a way of team for a team to organize to approach work. So there's a lot of different, um, we could call them different flavors of it, depending on who you're talking to at the time. But overall, what it has to do is everybody on your team has a specific job to do within within that team. So you have your software developers, you have your QA agents, you have your scrum master, you have your product owner. And the big thing to keep in mind, especially in scrum, is that even though everybody has their own role, nobody's actually the leader. The team works kind of on a flat hierarchy. No one reports up to anyone. In the organization, you're still gonna report up to someone. But within the team, everybody works together. The team decides what work comes in. And we call them sprints, but it's basically a two week uh, window of work being completed. Two weeks is kind of subjective depending on the team you're on. But um, overall Scrum is highly, highly adopted within the software development community because it gives everybody that defined role in order to know what they're doing throughout uh, that workflow. And you had mentioned earlier that this is something that can be used in many, many different industries. doesn't have to be software necessarily. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And actually even um, Agile itself, because I think it was Kanban specifically. So Kanban is the way of taking in a task. And the idea is Kanban 
if I remember correctly, um, is Japanese for river. And a river always flows in one direction. So the idea is you take a task, it moves forward, it goes for developer to QA. If there's a bug with it, you get a bug task created um, back in the development, but you never touch that ticket that's in the flow. This actually didn't even come from software develop, um, the software development industry, I should say. I believe this was, um, I think it was created at, it was either Toyota or Honda was the one who actually created Kanban um, back way back whenever it was. And I think that a lot of it also was around the time that, I, I don't remember if it predates Lean, but Lean came from the, the manufacturing industry. So these different industries had their way that they were handling work. And then Agile came along for software development, which was heavily um, influenced in late 90s slash early 2000s. If you look up the Agile Manifesto, um, it's you know the, the group of gentlemen that got together to really define what it meant for Agile within software development, you know, how things were agreed upon with the team. Nice. Okay. Nice. Now, first chapter of your book is basically defining what a bite-sized win is. And I was wondering, can you, can you really briefly explain what is a bite-sized win? Sure. So this goes back to when I was saying this could be applied to anything. This is not, um, right now we're not even talking about bite-sized tasks. We're just talking about what's a bite-sized win. And a bite-sized win is when you set out to do work and you do it in a very small, um, a small definition of the work. So think about, let's go to software development. Let's say you have a big task to deliver. Maybe you have to deliver um, some sort of widget on your main website that is going to read the mind of your, cons your visitor and turn them into a buyer of your product. Maybe this widget doesn't need to be delivered all at one time. Maybe you can deliver a small thing at a time. Like maybe you deliver first, you know, just the outline of where it's going to lie. Maybe you deliver you know, text over top of it that says under construction, something like that. Just something that as you're going along, you can see it slowly being built up, but what you're delivering is still something that can be of value to your client, whether it's displayed on the website yet or not. Okay. And this could be something like if I just use a basic example, like if I'm, if I'm cleaning my condo, mm -hmm. I have the overall umbrella task of cleaning the condo. Mm -hmm. But if I break that down, I can break that down into, okay, um, kitchen, like take out the trash, wipe the countertops, wipe the uh, cabinets, um, stove. Mm -hmm. And it essentially breaks out down into like those smaller and smaller units. That's like in my mind, all of a sudden it seems more, uh, doable, like it seems less daunting to think about right. it in those simpler things. Is that kind of like the mindset of it? Absolutely, because if your goal is to have the clean condo, yes, you're going to over time have that clean condo. But while you're in the middle of cleaning the condo, you're going to say, "Oh, I have more to do. I have more to do." Well, your first goal is, "Okay, I want to take out the trash." Wow, the trash is done. This is awesome. Okay, I want to sort my mail over there. Oh, look at that. The mail is sorted. And then as you're going and you're getting these wins and these things are setting you up to, you know, feel a lot better about the progress of everything, then, you know, you get these bite-sized wins that ultimately deliver your final task of having your clean condo. 
That no, that's I, I've heard of this. There's a book out there uh, called The Compound Effect, and it essentially I think the author's name is Darren Hardy, if I remember correctly, and he talks about yeah, you um you snowball like a life events into essentially into um gaining momentum in your life to then like knock down and like overcome hurdles in your life Mm -hmm. and it this it this sounds like a a similar concept like you you're achieving these small small tasks because they're part of the the bigger task but for you to just focus on the bigger task again it's it seems almost like insurmountable like oh my gosh i gotta clean my whole condo like (laughs) oh like i don't want to do that but but i can clean like you said i can take out my trash right now and then oh cool that's done and i can sort my mail and then i can wipe down my dinner table and i can vacuum and then it's like halfway done at that point exactly i i just added that book to my reading list i'm going to look that up because that that sounds very similar to what we're talking about here i'd love to read that Mm -hmm. and it's you know, a lot of it is you have to think back about when you're in school, you know, when you're in school, you don't want to do that big project. But if you have little things to do for that project as it goes on, you do it without realizing that you just did the entire project. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've, I've been there before. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I can think of many examples. Many. When I, when I was in college, I took this class. It was called um, Systems Development and Design. And basically the entire course was a project. So you got in a team with, I think it was four other, uh, three to four other classmates. I think I worked with three other classmates. And you come up at, within the first week or two of the class, you come up with a pretend implementation that you're going to do. And throughout the course, we learned different things like, you know, Gantt charts and, you know, tasking and things like that. And we really build up to the big picture of having this entire project delivered. So we start at the beginning, you know, a little bit at a time, we're going, going, going. I remember when I took that class, we, within the first week or two, um, something happened that we delivered and I, th- I think she didn't like it. And we were getting basically a D on that course. And no matter what we did, we couldn't raise it up from being a D. And we were convinced that she just didn't like us for some weird reason. And um, so finally, it was two, it was two classes left in the semester. And I happened to be at the at the building early. And I said, you know, she has she has office hours now. Let me go talk to her. I said, hey, look, you've been giving us Ds this entire time. We don't get it. You know, we have a very solid system. It's actually built off of a system that really exists in real life. And she says, oh, yeah, in your second week, you delivered this, but you forgot to do this with it. I said, that's it? She said, that's it. And I went back and I fixed it. And we ended up getting a B plus in that class. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> we were trying to get bite-sized wins the entire semester, but we just kept failing and had no clue. All it took was one conversation and we fixed everything. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm glad that worked out. Yeah. Nice. Now, so to me, this totally makes sense. This The bite-sized win mindset to me in reading your book, this all makes sense. And this is kind of how I have viewed things in my life that if I can break them down into more manageable pieces, it's going to be better for me in the long term, uh, just for um, complete, actually completing the task, but also like my 
like time and energy and just, you know, mental capacity to focus on things. But, and I, and I think you kind of got into this with, when you were talking about the like legacy versus modern workflows and there was a time where this bite-sized win mindset or uh, this like agile methodology like it wasn't a thing in software development and i was wondering like what was it like before like a bite-sized win mindset like it must have been like just not as good it seems to me (laughs) It it was the wild, wild west, let me tell you. <laughs> so the way that work used to happen was you would have just basically a backlog of tickets and you would just pull from them. You just do what you can. You'd submit the work. There were no real schedules. Um, some companies, you know, they would have their delivery schedules, but for the smaller organizations, you know, it's just, hey, when are we going to, you know, when are we going to send this out? So there was just no structure. I think that when it came to implementing, you know, agile, for example, having bite-sized win mindsets, even, you know, any of that, it didn't really change the amount of work that was there. It just changed how you approach delivery to it. And I think that's the important thing that people understand with, even with the bite-sized win mindset here, you aren't necessarily looking to produce more work. You aren't looking to necessarily produce, you know, the best work possible. You should already be doing that. What you're trying trying to focus on now is how to manage a delivery that keeps you happy, keeps the business happy, and keeps your client happy. And more information is always better for these situations. Okay. Now, going along in your book and the, the next chapter on self-organization and if i'm again like comparing things now to like how they were like back in the day quote unquote was it more like somebody like a defined leader like just assigning like uh roles to different people and like leading the organizational effort and you know now you talk about like you have to have like the discipline to just kind of people are just going to fall like into their natural places that they like kind of just naturally fit oh absolutely everyone would get pigeonholed somewhere you know if you didn't like working on something but you were good at it you were going to be working on that so what would happen is you would have the manager typically would come and let's let's say in this scenario there's no development lead maybe it's the manager and then directly under the manager of the software developers the manager would come in with a list of items that the business is complaining about they'd say okay who knows this area okay you're going to work on this you say okay well what do they want and the manager said i don't know just talk to them you know you'll figure it out and that was really how work was back then and um it's so weird to say back then yeah. <laughs> but back then you know it was just yeah. whatever work had to get done is just what got done and you would just keep your manager informed then you started to, when you would get into a place that maybe you had a development lead the manager would yell at the lead hey the business is yelling at me about this this and this and then the lead would be that person that divvied up the work then the lead would uh schedule the deployments and things like that so a lot of the time even thinking back to not even that long ago, probably about 15 years ago, uh, even 10 years ago, you would have tickets that were created in the system that were 
somebody sent me this email, they'd copy the email, paste it in a ticket, and then send it out to the queue. And then the developer would then be tasked with figuring out what this email even means. And then that's where something like the product owner role within Scrum became important because the product owner had to ensure that what was conveyed to the developer made sense. I even okay. saw that at this job where I am now, they, I got them moved into Azure DevOps um, working out of that. Prior to that, they were using Jira, which Jira, Azure DevOps, those are just ticketing systems where work is defined and the developers get that assigned. So for, for them, prior to what I, the efforts that I'm working on them with, they had these very long drawn out tickets that were just conversations and you would look at these and you'd say, what are they even talking about here? So when I took over and I started to go in there and fix things for them, I said, okay, this is the format that we're going to write our ticket in because now the developer can look at it and know what's being asked. They don't need to guess anymore. And uh, the role that you just mentioned, uh, a product owner, mm -hmm. is, um, mm -hmm. that yes. role, what exactly, can you explain really quick, like uh, what, what they do, what somebody in a product owner role does? Sure. So before the product owner, uh, going back a little bit, because this is important, the description, we had what was called a business analyst. And I'm sure even people who aren't in a software development role have probably worked with a business analyst in the past. Their job is to find things that the company needs in order to progress. So what the business analyst does is somebody comes to them and says, hey, you know, we need something created that does this. You know, let's say, for example, um, our accounting team is working out of Excel. We need a better solution than Excel. So the business analyst would go out, they'd either um, find software that exists or they'd start defining software that they'd like to see. They would write this gigantic requirements document. They'd package it up, send it off to the software developers and say, okay, let me know when it's launched. And that was pretty much the last you heard from them during that process, unless there were any major questions. The product owner is a little different. The product owner still holds the position of what the, the business analyst does, but the big difference is they own what work is being done. And this is the big thing that Scrum teaches. The team works as a whole in order to deliver a product. So the product owner, what they do now is they still go out, they still talk to the business, they find needs that they have, they have the requirements document, but instead of handing off the requirements document, they now sit with the team. They sit with the team and they create the tickets or maybe they create tickets ahead of time to define what the work is. If the developers have any questions uh, during their two-week sprint, the product owner is there to answer it for them. This is no longer a case of doing work and throwing it over the fence and saying, hey, let me know when it's completed. Now, instead, everyone actually works together. And I've heard this described before as, you know, everyone's being very kumbaya with each other. We're sitting around the campfire. But it, it is really paramount to how Scrum works because Scrum teaches that everybody succeeds and fails as a team. And I think that's one of the most important things to teach any team, whether you're using Scrum or not. If you're if you succeed, you succeed together. If you fail, you fail together. If, you know, let's say your weakest software developer turns in something that broke the system and we just lost six years worth of data, that junior software developer did not do that. The whole team did that because the team should have checked the work. The team should have defined what was in there. The team should have ensured that that software developer had what was necessary to do that work. And this is something that's very important for them to understand is that nobody should just have something thrown at them.
Yeah. I've definitely been in situations where things have been thrown at me. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and no, yeah, it's not a it's not a very fun feeling. Oh no. Um but definitely have also experienced the the other like the good things um too and it's it hasn't all been bad, but yeah, it's just somehow I don't know. I think maybe that's just a human thing. The bad things just sometimes stick out a little more mm-hmm. than the the really positive things about uh, my career in this industry. <laughs> now, really quick too, because I, I know you mentioned this role as well, the the scrum master role, uh, a yes. few times, and I was wondering, uh, can you explain that role as well, and kind of what the the major functions are of somebody in that role? Sure. And um, I'm going to preface this by saying I've been seeing some chatter on LinkedIn recently that people don't seem to like what the Scrum Master role is being defined as, but I'm going to describe it this way anyways, because this is how I know it. The Scrum Master, in my opinion, is the warrior with two swords, the one who stands between the team and the business to make sure that the business does not, um, let's say, cause unnecessary distractions for the team while the team is trying to get work completed. So the scrum master will facilitate meetings. The scrum master will facilitate conversations such as email threads, whatever has to be done. But they are basically there to make sure that when the business has anything that they that they want to request from the team, they have a centralized person that they can talk to. And the Scrum Master, their number one concern is time. So they make sure that we aren't wasting time. They make sure we also have enough time to do what we need to get done. They make sure that we don't take too much work into a sprint. We don't overcommit ourselves is what we call it. So they just make sure basically that the team from the start of the sprint until the end of the sprint, everything has gone smooth. And the reason why I say like there's kind of been debates on LinkedIn recently that I've been seeing. Apparently, they don't like being referred to as the, the um, you know, the warrior with two swords, kind of like the way I described it. They say we're not that. We're just we're there to help the team. We're part of the team. And I'm like, yes, you are, but you guys do an awesome job on the external side as well. <laughs> do do things then? And I guess I I kind of have had experience with this. I kind of know that may might know the answer to this question, but can things then get pretty uh, messy or like in a sticky situation if uh, the business end has, um, I don't want to say too much input, but they are, I don't even want to say interfering, but if they just kind of don't let developers be, like in their own space and they kind of um I, like i said i don't want to say interfere um but if you catch my drift like yeah <laughs> the, causing distractions basically yes. you know in in yeah. any any degree of dis- distraction and it's it does get to be a problem because when the team commits to a certain amount of work for the next two weeks the expectation is that work is going to be delivered and it's up to the team to also account for external distractions because there are going to be some. Let's say, for example, maybe your team also supports the production, uh, the production website. You know, it could go down and it could cause the team to have to lose sight for a few hours. You know, maybe even a few days, depending on what the issue is. But when the when the business side of the house starts to get very involved in the process, um, 
I should say, involved in the team's sprint without really being involved in the process itself, they derail those times. So the team is accounting for certain, you know, certain distractions to happen, but for the most part, they're expecting to be able to deliver all this. And I've seen it in pretty much every job I've been in. So this is not unique to anyone, but you'll sometimes have that one developer who's very chummy with someone in the business side. So that person will go to the developer and say, hey, you know, can you run this really quick query for me? And, you know, sure, I can run this query. You know, in your mind, it takes two seconds, but the reality is it could take two hours, you know, waiting for data to come back, things like that. So you've now taken two hours away from the entire team that nobody knew that was taken away. So going back to the Scrum Master, because the Scrum Master has to always account for any time that's used during the sprint, you're now doing a disservice to the Scrum Master because they can't do their job now because they didn't know that this was. It just looks like the team couldn't meet their commitments and nobody knows why. Mm, okay. Okay. Now, one one thing about breaking things up into these smaller units, I'm... I wanted to ask you this, and I, I think actually you had a section on this in the book, um, like the kind of like the potential for downsides to breaking things up. And I could see, I want to give you this scenario, like if we use the condo example, if I break things up into so many smaller things, like if it goes beyond just like those little subunits like if i'm taking um if i break it up into different rooms kitchen dining room bedroom and then from there i break it up into like even smaller things like bed countertops table but then i even do even smaller like blankets mattress and i i guess i guess maybe this would be the best way to phrase this question is is there such thing as like too much subtasking there is. And even using, um, we were talking about mail before, maybe you say, okay, I want to sort my mail, but then you say, okay, well, let me do a subtask of, you know, sorting my junk mail, sorting my mail that mom sent me saying my mail that's bills. You know, you, you, when you think about what a subtask should be, my, my opinion on this is it should be something that is small enough to produce a deliverable. So if if it's, you know, a deliverable can also be very large. So you don't want something large, you know, it has to be something as small as you can get while still having something tangible in the end, I think is how I described it in the book. And it basically means that let's say, you know, at the very beginning, I was talking about like a widget on the website, you know, if you're doing, if you're going to split apart the user interface from the backend code, you know, saying, oh, delivering the entire user interface is one deliverable. Well, that's a lot of work that takes a lot of time. So let's think smaller. Okay, well, how about we have this section on the page where we kind of put a mock-up at? Well, okay, a mock-up might make sense because the client can see it. But if one of your tasks is create an empty space that's 900 pixels by 900 pixels, what does that actually you know, prove for anybody? It doesn't help. It's way too small at that point. And all you're doing now is you're wasting time with check-ins and you're creating a deployment, you're creating a QA task off of this. It was just way too small. There was no deliverable. So always strive for something that's small enough to have a, a tangible deliverable at the end of it, but not so large that you're taking several days to deliver it if you can help it. And in something like 
I, I know you mentioned Jira earlier, and that's uh, the current project that I'm on. We use Jira. And when you break break things up into these smaller tasks, are you literally using the uh, like subtask feature in Jira? Are you actually, if you take like one story that's uh, a, a feature and then you just break it up into a bunch of other different features or do you actually utilize that uh, that like subtask, um, like a flag or like distinction in Jira? So in Jira specifically, because Azure DevOps is a little different, but um, basically everything holds the same the same um, value within the system, I guess you could say, but it's just what you label it as. So in Jira, yes, there there are uh, tasks for, there's a story type task, then there is a subtask type task. And Jira is easier to explain this on because it's specifically called a subtask. The way that I think about it is the task is um, the request for the work that needs to be completed. The subtask is the developer's instruction on how to do it. So when I break things into smaller tasks, I use the, the story ticket in Jira because I'm saying by the end of your deliverable, you're going to have this. Now it could take four or five subtasks in order to accomplish it, but each of those subtasks didn't have anything tangible that could have come out of them. You know, it was something like set up a database connection. You know, you can't deliver that, doesn't do anything. You know, create that 900 by 900 block on the page. Mm. Again, it doesn't do anything, but the, the task itself was to create a mock-up on the user interface. Okay. I like that. Yeah. I haven't thought about it like that, but yeah, thank you for that. That that clears that up. Um, you had a, ch- uh, a chapter in the book, uh, later on in the book, titled uh, Separation of Concerns. Mm-hmm. And I, I know this term as, you know, the, a software term, um, but mm-hmm. you use it in, in this realm of, uh, of project or, you know, managing teams and, um, a bite-sized win mindset. I was wondering, can you explain uh, what that means? Separation of concerns? Absolutely. And for me, separative separation of concerns is one of the biggest things that I teach every team that I'm on, because what it does, if you implement it correctly, is you start to get everyone's mindset that nobody should do something that they're not supposed to be doing. So this can be what code does. This can be where code lives. This could be what a member of the team is responsible for doing, things like that. So in terms of software, when I think of separation of concerns, what I mean is that let's say you have code that accesses a database. The database code should not live with the code that's doing business logic, like you know, adding two values together, for example. Um, keep everything very small, keep everything separated from each other. You don't want to contaminate your code base. And I think in that chapter is where I talk about microservices and what a microservice is, what, what it is, is that it does one very specific task and it does it well. So when I send a request to my microservice, I say, add these two numbers. And within you know half a millisecond, it responds back and says, okay, the value seven. Or I have another one, a microservice that says, okay, I want you to go to this database table and find me this record. And it should respond within you know a millisecond or two. And that's, if you've really done separation of concerns, that's what you're going to get. So if you have one that says, 
hey, get me get me this record from the table, the table, and then add it up with a value from this other table. Well, that's no longer separating concerns. You've now contaminated your concerns. <laughs> and 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 we don't want contamination. We don't like contamination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um okay. Okay. And now as far as bringing that term um into this realm of the bite-sized win mindset. And I, I know you, you were kind of mentioning it earlier, um, like no uh, one person should be, you shouldn't have like multiple people like crossing over basically into each other's like mm -hmm. business, basically. Yeah. And this is actually there. There's um, a security certification that especially financial companies need to get. Um, it's called, I think they call it SOX compliance, but basically the at its core, it's talking about separate separation of concerns. I, I don't think that's what the acronym for the certification is, but what it is, is it's, it's setting up your network in a way so that your database admins can access the database, but a software developer can't. A software developer cannot access a production server, but your DevOps can access that. So it's, and that's why I think it's very important for people to get into this mindset, especially if you ever decide to go somewhere that has finance, healthcare, even government type things, you're going to find cases where you don't have access to systems. And if you're not used to it, that's going to cause you a problem because you're not going to know how to work in that mindset. So it's it's better to prepare yourself a little earlier for that because you never know where you will be in your career. But you should get into the habit of that's not my job title, and unless there's a direct need for me to be in here, I shouldn't be there. <laughs> I like that. I I should use that one <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> I um I I saw too. Uh, you have a section in the book that reminded me again, of another book that I read called uh, With Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham. And Lanny was a Olympic gold medalist in uh, arch archery, I believe. And he wrote a book basically talking about that you need to train these like three different parts of yourself. There's the self-conscious mind there's the subconscious or there's the conscious mind the subconscious mind and the uh your self-image and there's a section in your book where you talk about celebrating wins mm -hmm. and lanny kind of talks about this too in that the self-image is the most important part of your mind in that every time that you do something right whether it's uh, like if you hit a bullseye out on the range or you make like a like a perfect pass in hockey or you make all your free throws in a basketball game, like you need to stop and imprint that performance that you just did on your self-image so that your body and your mind start to believe that you're capable of this all the time. Mm -hmm. And that kind of made me like reading that section and celebrating wins, I kind of get that same picture in my mind. Like, Oh yeah, we like, it's easy to like dwell on like bad stuff that I do, but 
sometimes I got to stop and think like, oh, like, but there's actually like some good things that I do too. And maybe I should, you know, just once in a while, like give myself a little praise and a pat on the back for doing that. Um, yeah. H- how important is it to like celebrate whenever you get some of these bite-sized wins? I think the, the celebration is what solidifies it in your mind because you're getting those little endorphins from delivering something, you know, you, you did a good job. You should really be happy that you did it. And I think in, well, not I think, but in that chapter, I should say, I also discussed that you should also celebrate your failures. And it's not that, you know, be happy that you did something wrong. It's be happy that you learned your lesson. <laughs> At least I hope you learned your lesson. And by celebrating your wins, you know, you're not only showing yourself that you recognize you did a good job, the people around you are recognizing that you did a good job as well. You know, you have the business who now understands the hard work that went into this. You have your your direct managers, you know, your directors, they see what you did. So when the team as a whole is celebrating the fact that they did a good job, the people around them are starting to see it. Hey, you know, what's what's the buzz going on over there? And of course, we're not talking celebrating like, you know, popping champagne and things <laughs> like that. It's just, hey, guys, we had a great deployment last night. You know, share it with people. Make sure everyone's aware of it because there's going to come a time where you're going to do something that, is not cause for celebration but if people are so used to seeing that you know you guys are doing an excellent job they're not going to see a problem with you know having a failure every now and then especially if it's something you can learn from Mm, yeah no yeah that that makes sense um now these celebrations is are these something or is this something that is done in, you know, and like on my current team, we have, uh, we have like retrospectives every couple of weeks. Um, is, are these celebrations, do they take place at specific times, like at a retro where like, we definitely celebrate things at the retros that I have, or is this something that's, you know, whenever it happens, like an impromptu moment, like, you know, or is it like at like set certain times, like in your, uh, in your projects, uh, sprint or timeline? I guess it really depends on the team, to be honest, because to me, when I, when I think of celebrating a win, again, I'm not thinking of confetti and, you know, champagne and all that. (laughs) What I'm thinking of is, you know, you're, you're sitting there one day, we're in a work from home environment. Now we can all relate to this. You're sitting there and, some developer comes and goes, okay, guys, the server that's been down for four hours, you know, we just realized what it was and we're gonna, never going to have this problem again. Everyone's like, that's amazing. That's great. You know, that's that's the celebration. Everyone's recognizing it. Everyone's saying, hey, you know, good work. Congrats. Yes, it could have been a retrospective or it could have just been, you know, a note that was left in chat and someone picked it up and thought, hey, this is actually really good news. We've been dealing with this for months now. Mm-hmm. So it, it, you know, it just depends on the team. It depends on the context. It could really be at any point. Do you think being like working from home, does it make it harder to celebrate things just by nature of being like so far from other people? Well, I would say the celebrations aren't as far reaching anymore. You know, when we were all in the office, when someone did a good job and I was like, Hey, great, you know, congrats, everyone's clapping, you know, you don't, you don't get that anymore. And it's kind of the nature of the work from home culture that we are now, but 
it's one of those things where you just kind of try to work with it. And with some companies, you know, they have a chat where the entire organization is in this chat together. You know, you can go in there and say, hey, by the way, so-and-so did this today. It was awesome. You know, he or she, they did this awesome thing and we're so proud of them. And then everyone gets to see it and you're actually further reaching at that point, but it's not the, it's just not the same anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about that because your career in this field has been so long that like you, I started at our, at our company, uh, 2019. So I, for a brief period of time, I was in the office for a little bit. And it was very brief, and now we're like we're not going back. And right. your career has been so long where, at some point, I'm assuming you were in the office, you know, five days a week mm-hmm. at one point. And now, are, are you currently? Are you pretty much still like fully remote? I am. Do you foresee? like going looking ahead into the future will things kind of circle back to uh coming like everybody coming into an office or has this remote work and work from home life is it kind of here to stay now i i see us in more of a hybrid scenario now like what's going on um even at the company i'm at right now the we have a new ceo here and he had mentioned um about a month ago if you live within say 20 to 30 minutes of the office you know i'd really like you to come in two to three times a week and to be honest i think the pattern that i've noticed when it comes to tech in general is people just follow what big tech does so amazon pioneered the um the idea of the open open office concept you know it's like there's no walls there's no cubicles you know you have like little sections people can congregate i think it was amazon who did this and companies started to do it then um google started to say okay well we're going to have a lot of big benefits to being in the office you know we'll give you the massages and stuff like that and then people started to do it well what we're seeing now is google um i think amazon did it and Twitter's a different story, but um, I think Meta did it too. They're starting to force people back into the office. And I think people are going to say, hey, hold on, big tech is doing it. And funny enough, this was just like a couple months ago that Google started to do this. I think they were the first one who did it. And lo and behold, the CEO of my company <laughs> said, hey, I'd like you guys back in two to three days a week. Of course, I don't even live in the state where my company operates, so it's not an option for me. But I do have some team members who are pretty close to the office, and they'll probably start going back now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez, I got so, I got so used to working from home, I got to say. I I do kind yeah. of miss seeing people though. I I will admit that. But man, it's yeah, I've gotten very used to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe to I don't no, not to my detriment cuz I feel like it's been it's been good overall, but it I do kind of miss like I said I do kind of miss seeing people um and interacting mm-hmm. with people like back back in the offices in Ann Arbor. Um so yeah, we'll see what happens with it. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you, Derek, was earlier in our conversation, uh, you talked about like some certifications, and 
I wanted to ask you on that because the like the stuff regarding agile, you can get certified in those things. And is it like pretty like for somebody who wants to uh, have a career in this field? Are those certifications like pretty um, advantageous to get those? I. I'm always iffy about advocating for or against them because it really depends on where you are and what you're doing. Um, and the example I'll give is Microsoft. You know, when I first started my career, it was 2004 was when I got my first IT job. And there was this big thing of, oh, you have to have all the Microsoft certifications. So I thought, oh, I needed the Microsoft certifications or I'm never going to flourish. Well, I ended up you know, moving into an IT manager position with zero certifications. And I actually just saw LinkedIn, actually, um, a couple weeks ago, someone posted, he said, hey, I've been a scrum master now for four years. You know, I've had, I think, two jobs, and I have yet to be certified in any agile thing. So I think typically the advice that I give to someone is if you're going to do the, the certification route, do it for yourself because it's going to help you learn things that you didn't realize that you didn't know. And even with as much as I know and I advocate when it comes to Scrum, I'm not certified, but I kind of want to be certified because I feel like there are things that I'm just missing out on, probably some core things that were never taught to me. And if nothing else, it gives me uh, an outsider's perspective of how maybe I've been doing things, you know, maybe not the right way, maybe not the wrong way, but maybe it's just a different way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last, last couple questions. Uh, one I wanted to ask you was, and I'll preface this by saying, kind of my background and how I got into this industry was I actually I took a coding boot camp uh, several years ago now, and you know changed. I was doing nothing close to what I'm doing now, and I wanted to ask you for anybody who is thinking about getting in this field or do you get, or rather this do you get asked you know hey do you have any advice for somebody trying to be a, a software developer like kind of what do you usually tell people so i think the biggest thing is the most successful software developers in my opinion are the ones who like to learn if you're somebody who um let's say for example you mentioned the code camp if you're someone who just wants to go do a code camp and then start working you're and you don't really plan on doing much else after that you're probably going to get in a position that you don't like and you're not going to know how to get out of it so the the biggest thing to remember about software development is that companies don't like to update software so if you want to learn a new technology you have to be willing to teach it to yourself and you have to be willing to explain it in terms of, I don't have professional experience, however, I know this. So one of the easiest ways to do it is to find an open source project and contribute to it. But I say it's easy, but that doesn't mean it's simple because a lot of the time you can't find one that's very you know straightforward for someone with minimal experience in software development. But if you start to do little check-ins on their code, you know they'll start to see you and they'll usually help pull you into that. But biggest thing is just make sure you have the appetite for it. You have to be willing to learn. Um, I always recommend um, the online video websites. Um, I won't mention any because I know you're not sponsored by any here, but there's a lot of them out there. <laughs> um, you know, some of them you pay for, some of them are free. 
YouTube is always a great one, you know, just learn something new, basically, when when you're going through. And actually, I'll, I'll add this really quick, too. I, I know I'm starting to ramble here, but <laughs> um, one of the best ways that I found what to learn is to look at open job postings. Go out, say, okay, I'm a software developer, you know, like I'm a C-sharp software developer, for example. I would go out and I look for senior C-sharp developer positions, something that's above me at the time, and I'd see what do they expect you to know. Oh, I expect you to know entity, I know, you know, Dapper. I expect you to know your basic design patterns, ORMs, or those, you know, things like that. And that will help to give you a guide of what you should really start to learn. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's essentially it's giving you it right there in the the job description. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I actually wrote an article on Medium one time. Um it was called Interviewing for Fun. And the idea was don't don't waste someone's time by going for an interview for them, but if you're kind of open to the idea that you're okay switching jobs, go on an interview because a lot of the time, even if you're not completely qualified for it, having the conversation with them will give you some valuable information about what you need to look out for. You know, don't look up those websites where they say, oh, this is Google's secret um, coding challenge thing. Like th those are, in my opinion, those are kind of garbage because nobody tests like Google does, <laughs> you know, but the easiest way to do it is find a company that's interviewing one that you would be interested in, you know, should you be given the opportunity, don't waste your time again, but you'll learn from them. You'll learn what they're looking for. And even if you're not prepared for it, you'll be prepared when it's time. Nice. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good advice. Um, I, something that you mentioned just a little bit earlier i actually i started for the youtube channel i'm doing a series on the book clean code and mm -hmm. i i'm just starting out in it and there's stuff already in just like the first couple chapters that i'm like oh gosh i i didn't even think about it like that and mm -hmm. it's crazy i love that book uncle bob his whole series yeah um, after you finish clean code make sure you read the clean coder it's about how to conduct yourself professionally as a software developer. And it, it gives some advice that you would not necessarily think of. I have that one as well, actually. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll do that. I like one that next. one. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, as far as, as far as you and in, in your future, uh, future career as an author are, and I know this book just came out very recently, but are there any other ideas for books that you have? I do. I'm actually, I'm starting to outline it now. Um, you know, won't give too much away because, you know, I don't want to jinx. I feel like if you reveal too much, you're going to jinx yourself there. Yeah. But I, I am trying to think of a way that I can um, write a book in terms of like, think about coaching software developers, because that's been a big part of my career as well. Just coaching the people who re either report up to me or who work alongside with me, alongside of me. And I, I think it's a valuable bit of information because a lot of people don't think about coding as helping other people to advance as well. You know, they like to work in their little bubble. And I think that as a community, we need to be able to teach each other. And this is something that I want to write a book that kind of advocates for that and really explains why you should take someone under your wing, whether they're asking to or not, because you're going to help someone else advance. And I think it's really important to help everyone around you advance. That's really cool. When, when that book comes out, I'd love to have you on again to talk about it. Um, Derek, this has been a great conversation. Um, I've learned a ton, and I just want to say uh, 
thank you very much for doing this. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Um, for people who want to connect with you, uh, are you on any other, I, I know you're on LinkedIn, but are you on any like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Um, I don't have a big social media presence. I, I am on LinkedIn and I'm also, if you look at medium, I, I don't know my full medium address. I think it's Derek dash Torrance. <laughs> I, I don't even know, but if you look up Derek Torrance on medium, I think I'm the only Derek Torrance. The, the other Derek Torrance that I know of is a, is a DJ. So he may not have a, a big medium presence. <laughs> <laughs> and in the book, people can buy the book just uh, right off Amazon. I have Amazon. So, a uh, paperback copy you can buy on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you are more of an ebook reader, I have it available right now on Amazon Kindle. I have it on Google Play, and I also have it on uh, Barnes and Noble Nook. So, just to give everyone different options of how they'd like to to read it. Same price across all of the the platforms. So, and I'm not in it to you know for this wild profit margin. I'm just trying to share the knowledge, basically. <laughs> No, and and I really appreciate you writing this book. Um, I've learned a lot reading it, and I think other people uh, in our in our industry, other software developers, I think they'll get a lot of value out of it. So I, yeah, thank you for writing it. Um, thank you for coming on and talking about it, and hopefully have you back on again to again talk about this new book. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me on, Chris. The Cheetash uh, podcast. I've been I've been also listening to them. By the way, I've been enjoying them. You have a lot of really interesting authors on here, so I'm a subscriber to your channel, and I can't wait to hear what else comes out out of it. Oh, thank. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I have a lot of a lot of great guests coming up, so I'm I'm excited to see where it goes. Um, everybody out there, I'll include links in the description i'll include a link to the uh, amazon page for the book and everybody should go check it out derek again thank you very much and everybody out there thank you very much for listening my name is chris this has been cheat take care everybody <laughs>